I'm Nora McNerney, and this is Terrible. Thanks for asking. If you know me, you know that when I'm at my worst, I am the worst. The worst person you've ever met. Sometimes when I'm on a plane and I hear another passenger say something rude or just use the wrong tone of voice with a flight attendant, I'm like, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God. Or even worse, once the flight attendant has announced that overhead space is limited and is now reserved only for suitcases, so don't put your jackets up there, and then someone stands up and puts their jacket in the overhead bin, I seethe. I am like, what is wrong with you? What's wrong with you? So healthier people than me suggest approaching these kinds of situations with the attitude of what happened to you instead of what's wrong with you. Because we are shaped by what has happened to us in varying degrees and in varying ways. Of course we are. We know that. Anecdotally, at least, our childhoods affect us as adults. Some of us were abused as kids and then end up in abusive relationships or were raised by people struggling with addiction and now have our own addiction issues. Or we were bitten by a dog as a kid and now every time we see a dog, we want to bite it. Instagram therapists, which are a genre of account um, that I love on Instagram, will tell you that we all have work to do healing our inner children. They say things like, you can exercise and change your diet all you want, but if you don't heal what's going on in your heart, you'll never be free. And they're right, and that's a lovely sentiment when you just want something simplified and easily digestible, but like all of Instagram, that sentiment has been cherry-picked from a much larger, much more complicated thing. It's not to say that you know, that Instagram is not accurate in those assessments. There's a lot of truth to a saying like that, that what happens to us as kids shapes who we are as adults. It's just not the whole story. And it's also not just anecdotal. It turns out that science has been studying all of this. And what many people consider just a part of growing up, that life is hard, it sucks to be a kid, that actually has big implications. I am talking about threats that are so severe or pervasive that they literally get under our skin and change our physiology. The Center of Disease Control names it as the prime determinant of health. And yet for most of us, it's still an unknown epidemic. In the words of Dr. Robert Block, the former president of the American Academy of Pediatrics, adverse childhood experiences are the single greatest unaddressed public health threat facing our nation today. The magnitude of this problem is so huge and the complexity of dealing with it after the fact is so huge that realistically the only serious approach is going to have to involve primary prevention. When we recognize this to be a public health crisis, then we can begin to use the right toolkit to come up with solutions. In a world where all adults are former children and most children are future adults, a health crisis that starts in childhood is huge. It means that this isn't just happening to other people, but that this is something that will affect all of us in some way. As a team, we think this is all so important that we're going to spend the next three episodes exploring in depth the effects of childhood trauma and what it means for all of us. We're going to go down some surprising paths, share a lot of interesting and hopefully useful information, and ask a lot of questions. 
Like, how do we understand our own health, our own childhoods? And how are those things related? How do we understand and talk about the big cultural, political, and economic systems that keep hurting kids? How do we do better for the kids in our lives, especially the ones who are going through something hard? We hope that by the end of this series, we'll all have a common language to help us move towards a common understanding of how our childhoods aren't behind us and how everyone who is now a kid is hopefully going to grow up and take their childhood with them. We'll get to understand how to look at each other and ask not, what's wrong with you, sir, sitting in 11A, I'm looking at you, but what happened to you? And we'll get started with all that after this quick break. And we're back. So where do we start when we're talking about how childhood adversity affects us? Well, let's look at a childhood, one childhood, from a few different angles. So this is Britt. She is now 32 years old. But she used to be a kid, and when she was a kid, she was... A tomboy, first of all. I had brothers, mostly brothers, and I loved playing with them out at the park, outside. I loved art all my life. Um, I was the smallest and youngest child, so I spent a lot of time um, wanting to have my siblings play with me and probably the annoying one, if I can recall correctly, I was the tattletale. Uh, I would tell if my siblings didn't play with me. Maybe some of what happened in your childhood was positive. I grew up seeing my parents read in bed every night right next to each other, and that's how I like to end my days, too. Maybe your family prayed before meals, and now you do that with your kids. Maybe your family loved a specific sports team, and you still do, even though that sports team represents a place you never lived and maybe never even visited. We're definitely going to get to some of those wonderful things for Brit, but this show is not called My Childhood Was Great, Thanks for Asking. So... We're going to start by focusing on the more difficult parts of Brit's childhood. I felt misunderstood. I felt small. Um, At times I felt neglected, I think, in hindsight, just being the, you know, the youngest. Brit's parents were divorced before she was old enough to even realize what that means. When they divorced, her mom remarried. And Britt's siblings included her biological big sister and a blended family with a bunch of brothers. I do remember living with my mom and my stepdad and my two stepbrothers and my real sister uh, full time. And I would visit my real dad on the weekends. I loved the schools that I went to. I loved my friends. I loved that part of the town I lived in. Uh, My mom's house, there was always Inya. She played Inya nonstop. Um, We would get up and make hash browns for breakfast, uh, sometimes pancakes. We lived across the street from a park, so we spent a lot of time, us siblings, over there playing. Doesn't that sound lovely? Enya and pancakes and siblings and playing at the park. 
It was. And then when Britt was five, her mom changed. And that was scary for me because there was little talk about it. And I would just see my mom start to change in appearance. And um, I remember one time she came out of the bathroom crying. And I went in the bathroom to see what was making my mom sad. And I saw this grocery bag, this little paper bag full of my mom's hair. And just kind of seeing little signs of things that were not normal, but not a lot of talk that I can recall about what was happening. Britt's mom had bone cancer. She was diagnosed at age 29. So when I think back of that period of my life, I remember with my mom mostly being just afraid for her health. And I knew she loved us very much, and that's what everyone tells us. Nearly three years later, on New Year's Day of 1996, when Britt was eight, Britt is waking up in her room at her dad's house. On uh, the bottom bunk, and my sister was on the top bunk, and my dad came in, and it was around 7 a.m., I think, and he was crying, and he let us know that our mom passed away. And the really kind of embarrassing response that I had was I laughed, and I was clearly in shock, but I laughed, and then I felt like an asshole while my sister cried, and I laughed out of shock. But my dad still comforted both of us, and later that day took us to see some movies to kind of distract us. The movie that they picked that day, after going to see their dead mom one last time and playing for a little bit with their stepbrothers, was the Leslie Nielsen comedy Dead and Loving It. After her mom died, Britt and her sister went to go live with their dad full-time. It was a whole new life. Britt's dad started dating a few different women that Britt liked, but it was never anything too serious. Until a year later, when he meets a woman who will become Britt's stepmother. Britt is nine at the time, and she thinks of this lady as... A nice woman who would buy us ice cream. And I really loved ice cream. But another part of her was wary. It wasn't that she did anything in the very beginning of dating that seemed off-putting or alarming or unsafe, but it was just that she didn't have this warmth about her that I was used to with my mom or with the women that my dad dated. I don't know. We just weren't really close from the beginning. But Britt kept those misgivings to herself because what else was she going to do? Tap her dad on the shoulder and say, hey, dad, I know you're getting serious with this person, but I'm just getting a bad vibe from her. Britt's a tween and didn't feel like she was in the position to tell her dad how to live his life. So Britt doesn't say anything. And after two years of dating, they all move into a new house with dad's girlfriend and dad's girlfriend's son, who's the same age as Britt. At that point, that's when life shifted drastically because I went from the middle school that I loved on that part of town that I grew up in to moving in a different part of that town and whole new school, all new friends, just starting from scratch, really vulnerable. And it just life never felt the same after that. It's a new life and a new family, which is made official a few months later with a courthouse wedding. At the wedding, Britt does her best to be happy for her dad. She tries to be happy for all of them. 
It was a forced happiness. It didn't feel very genuine, but I felt like I was just a witness to this new life, kind of a passenger. The only thing that felt blended was that we were together and our furniture was blended. But I didn't have a sense that this dynamic was coming together. It always felt from the very beginning that we were butting heads. Britt could see this incompatibility in the way that her dad and her new stepmom parented. You know, there's my dad's version and then there was the stepmom's version. And um, she raised her child very differently than how my dad raised his child. In middle school, early in their new blended family, Britt started to feel like she and her sister were always being targeted for discipline by their stepmom, even though they made a lot of effort to be obedient. That they were starting to just be constantly in trouble. At this point, Britt's dad was working 40 to 50 hours a week, coming home, going back to work. He'd go out of town on work trips four or five times a year. So I think he was just, he was just taking on, um, taking on a new role and maybe was just too stretched then to be super present in his kids' lives because he was just trying to survive. Britt's dad says that he always tried to be there for the girls and be interested in what they were doing in life, but that he was also trying to navigate all sorts of new dynamics in the family. And Britt's stepmom is the one at home most of the time, so Britt's home life is mostly spent with her stepmother, and her feelings of isolation are increasing. Britt describes this time as... Really feeling unheard, small, neglected... To feel neglected felt like I wasn't seen and considered. And that was just a constant feeling throughout my childhood. Like that I wasn't valued enough to mm, have a voice and have feelings about what was going on. And then one day, things shift again in the household. Suddenly, the isolation and anxiety are amplified. My dad was out of town, and she was watching us, and we were woken up to her yelling that one of my sister or I had opened up a letter that she wrote my dad. And I can tell when my sister's lying, and we both looked at each other and to see, was it you that opened up this letter? And neither of us did. To this day, we still promised to each other that neither of us opened it. And she was irate that one of us was sneaking through her personal stuff. And from that day forward, she didn't trust us. From then on, Britt feels she and her sister are being isolated from their father. And there's more yelling. Like, say, some chores weren't done. Um, I feel like a rational way to talk about that to middle schoolers would be to ask them to do their chores instead of screaming at them and um, going into a spiral about all the things that are wrong with them. So it became, you know, every little tiny 
instance could spiral out of control to be this big thing and she would bring up things from the past or become nonsensical and it would just it would it would be a pattern of we did something wrong and then we would get grounded and if we ever tried to defend ourselves or explain ourselves we would get in even more trouble Britt remembers the yelling became a part of their daily routine Everyone focused on the immediate fight instead of yesterday's fight, which meant there was never any resolution, any closure. And Britt felt like some of the yelling was based on hyperbole or in situations that the girls didn't have any control over. A lot of the yelling happened when Britt's dad was at work. So when my dad was not home, my stepmom would either just be in her bed watching TV or yelling at us. And... When my dad was home, it was that she was running around, maybe cleaning, and or consulting him on how terrible we were. And oftentimes she would call him at work, and you could hear her in the other room screaming and telling him how terrible things are and um, to get home as soon as possible. That was a frequent thing. As a middle schooler, Britt didn't want to tell her friends about this. It was embarrassing. It would set her apart from them and their lives. Could she talk to her dad about it? Could he do something? She tried, but it didn't have the kind of result she was hoping for. Britt's dad acknowledges that his wife yelled and that, quote, anyone who heard her yelling could say it was intense. And he says it feels like it was abusive. But in the moment... Britt did not get the sense that he understood how this yelling affected her. Because when Britt would try to talk with him about it in private... And I would say to him that I'm afraid he would, you know, like a loving father, try to uh, navigate that and talk with her about it. And then I would get in trouble and, you know, she would say I was lying. And then I would actually get grounded for, quote, making these things up. Britt loved her dad... But she started to find that in most cases, he was siding with Britt's stepmom whenever there was a conflict. His response to Britt expressing hurt would be to defend his wife. This made Britt feel like she had no one to protect her. She learned to hide herself and her feelings and reactions to try to avoid it escalating. But no one reached out to her in the way that she needed in that lonely place. This is hard for Britt all of her feelings about what's happening, and feeling like her feelings about what is happening aren't important. This is stressful to her. On occasion, the whole family would get together and try and explain to her that what she was describing didn't actually happen. And so that's when I started to realize through overhearing my dad and her talking that she was on pain meds and... Um, you know, hearing my stepbrother mention that these pain meds are making her act differently and that the same thing happened with her last relationship with his dad. So there was a pattern that was being repeated. And I just, it was kind of validating to, to hear that because then it gave a reason for why she was acting um, so irrational. Because prior to that, I just thought this was just an angry woman who we could never please. <laughs> Let's be clear, chronic pain can be a devastating thing that can change someone's personality and cause all sorts of problems. And as we know, some of the drugs, opiates, that are used to combat chronic pain come with their own huge, huge problems. 
We asked Britt's dad about his wife's chronic pain, her use of medications, and her behavior. He said that, quote, most of her rational behavior would be due to the multiple medicines that her varied doctors put her on for one thing or another. He said that, quote, the pills changed her personality. He also said that, quote, most other people just shrug it off because they understand she has good reason to be in a bad mood. People with good health don't understand the torture of poor health. He also said that, quote, not everything can be blamed on opioids. I want to tell you that we called Brit's stepmom and stepbrother to ask them about everything in this story. They did not want to participate or did not respond. Brit's family saw a lot of movies. And one day, the movie was a gem called Harriet the Spy. It's based on a book, and in it, the young heroine, Harriet, who wants to be a writer, decides to spy on the people in her neighborhood and write about them in her journal. It ends with a lot of hurt feelings, but the overarching storyline is not what sticks with Brit. It's Harriet who sticks with her. Harriet, who feels small and ignored by her parents. Harriet, who's the hero of her own story. Harriet, who has a strong voice and a strong point of view. And this was a girl about my age, maybe a little older, and she witnessed a lot of, you know, fighting in her household, and that really resonated with me. Um, She would put her ear up to the door and take notes on what they were saying, and I really loved how powerful this little girl seemed to me in the movies. And I then had the seed planted that I wanted to become a spy, and I wanted to save up to buy a tape recorder. And so I did that. Some of this tape is hard to listen to, so if you want to skip ahead a few minutes, that's okay. We went over boards for you guys for Christmas, and you don't appreciate it. You sit there, nothing was good enough for you. Every goddamn thing you had to sit and send out. And you know what? I'm sick of this crap. It wasn't that we picked out things that weren't good for you. We went to a lot of work and spent a lot of time going down there after work when we retired and didn't have the money to get you guys Christmas presents, and... It gave me like this sense of control when I didn't have any control in my environment, and that was really important for me. And um, and I think also something that I realized after, you know, listening to the tapes after 20 years of not hearing it, I thought that I was completely voiceless and that I wouldn't stand up for myself. But something that I heard that kind of shocked me was on occasion I would, you know, be taping it. And I think that that gave me like a little sense of um, courage because I knew that I was documenting it. So, you know, remain calm, Brit, and, and, you know, prove how crazy life is. And and I would, you know, address my stepmom. And whereas before the tape recorder, I wouldn't have done that. And it kind of just gave me this like cushion of security that I could show someone this and prove that I wasn't making this up. I was trying to talk to you. I was. I came out there and I, you were like screaming, and I'm not used to you just waking up and screaming, and it, it made us feel uncomfortable. Yes. We weren't against you. Just go in your room next time and shut up. Is bottom line is, if I have to pull that kind of rant on you, because nobody is going to treat me like you are my equal. I'm not your fucking roommate, and I will say fucking because I'm really pissed off right now. If you sit there like, what did I do? 
some people have different ideas about what yelling is and about what is acceptable to say to kids. Some people might not think twice about examples like that, while others might be deeply offended at a parent talking that way to a child. The important thing, though, isn't how any of those folks feel about it. The only thing that matters is how Brit felt about it. To her, this was constant, and it was aggressive, and it was dismissive. For her, this made a huge impact on her emotions and her sense of self. And sometimes it got bad. There were a few times that the fights got so loud that neighbors would call the police. But one night when Britt was about 15, the fighting between Britt's dad and Britt's stepmom was getting really heated. Britt and her dad agreed that this night was the worst that they experienced. That night, Britt was looking out from her room down the hall toward her dad in the hallway. She could see him at the door to the kitchen on the other side of the room from her stepmom. Britt's stepmom was standing near the sink yelling at Britt's dad. And Britt turned on her recorder. Again, if you don't want to hear it, skip ahead about five minutes. Who the hell do you think you are? I have been on her dad for three years, the last three years. After Britt starts recording, there are several minutes of arguing, and then suddenly Britt's stepmom claims that Britt's dad has pushed her. And then I hear my stepmom scream. And then she says that he shoved her into the sink or something like that, or shoved her down. Britt and her dad both claim that he was not near her and did not touch her. And that she was calling the police. I was so scared, and I was glad that I was recording it, but I didn't have, you know, video recording of it, so I didn't think it would hold up. Mom, mom, please stop her. And then, you know, my brother comes upstairs, and he's trying to rationalize with her and just calm her down. So he's saying to her that she needs to calm down because she was really upset that he wasn't taking her side and didn't believe her. Mom, you're not... You don't like my son anymore. Get out. You and the girls, I don't care if you don't love me anymore because I don't like you either. This is a difficult part of the tape to listen to. It goes on for several minutes. Britt's stepmom threatens restraining orders and eviction for family members, accuses everyone in the house of lying and conspiring against her, and threatens to leave. You wouldn't trust yourself you like this either. I know what I'm saying. I know. Then, Mom, calm down, please. Okay, just, you know, everyone is on your side. You just need to calm down. Oh, you and these three girls. Get them out of my face. And you too. I'm not your mother anymore. You understand? So then the cops show up. <laughs> and I'm in my bedroom, and I'm still recording this thing from the very beginning. And he comes into my bedroom, and I think he says, uh, Brittany? Brittany? Yeah. Yeah. Um, he either asked, like, how are you doing? Or he said something like, what do you think is going on? Something like that. And I remember being pretty mute and scared to describe what was going on, because I, I knew what was going on. But I, again, still felt very voiceless. So when I had my opportunity to say something, I didn't. 
but he is talking in the recording and he's talking with, I think, another officer. And um, they're kind of describing what's going on and that there's pain meds. And um, she locked herself in the bathroom. And it was just one of the scariest fights I'd ever uh, witnessed and heard. And the thing that really stands out to me with listening to the tape recorder is it was the first time that someone came into my bedroom during a fight and asked how I was doing and checked in with me. And regardless of the fact that I choked up and couldn't say anything, it just, I felt heard. And so I, I broke down listening to the tapes because that's really what I wanted my dad to do. And to have a stranger come in and be so present and to see right through it and to see that something was not right. It was very validating and it was really healing to, to hear that tape. And he just said, you're going to go downstairs and be with your brother and sister. They're waiting for you. Everything's going to be okay, okay? And I think I like muffled okay. We're going to take a break. And we're back. Okay, so what can this one childhood show us about how you and me and we are affected by what happens to us early in life? Well, there's this scientific framework that Brit's story can help us understand. It starts with stress. In Brit's brain, all this stuff created stress. So we brought in someone to help us understand stress. My name is Brian Lynch. I'm a general pediatrician. I work at Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. Dr. Lynch works with kids and studies childhood trauma and resilience. Stress isn't inherently bad. And the stress response is actually very helpful for us. If we have to do well on a test or if a bear is chasing us and we have to get away, the stress response is very helpful to us. So mild and frequent stress can be called positive stress. Great. I love it. Give me more. And then there's toxic stress. And toxic stress is when you're overwhelmed. It's stress that's either frequent or severe or sustained, and you don't have the appropriate buffering mechanisms in place to handle it and coping mechanisms. So like if that bear is always running after you, like constantly? That's when we see problems. 
You might say, yeah, so what? The world is stressful. I'm stressed all the time. My job is stressing me out. My family is stressing me out. The state of the world is stressing me out. Sure, sure, sure. But it's just stress. Yes, I eat a little more. Yes, I have some trouble sleeping. Yes, my stomach hurts literally all the time. My hair is falling out in chunks, but I live with it. So how bad can these quote-unquote problems be from quote-unquote toxic stress? It can actually change your brain and change your biological systems. Especially when you're a kid and your brain is still developing. When that stress is activated all the time from trauma or something difficult and it turns toxic, that can literally change the way your brain develops. We do know at this point that it actually can change the size of your brain and how it functions. For example, areas that help you with decision-making or emotional control can be smaller in your brain if you've experienced adverse childhood experiences. Toxic stress can mean that as you grow up, your physical systems that help you cope with stress don't work correctly. And that's serious, but it goes deeper. Literally, toxic stress can change the way your genetics are expressed. So we all have sort of chemical marks on our DNA. And those marks can be rearranged based upon the experiences we have in life. And every day we have lots of experiences. And positive experiences can rearrange them in a way that then can predict good health outcomes. But experiences like adverse childhood experiences can rearrange them in a way they're going to be at higher risk for negative health outcomes. This is why what we're talking about isn't just a bad childhood, but a public health crisis. A way of contextualizing these childhood experiences and their effects is called ACEs, which is short for Adverse Childhood Experiences. ACEs is based off a study done in the 1980s when an internist named Dr. Vincent Felitti and his research partner, Dr. Robert Anda of the CDC, asked 26,000 people if they'd participate in a decades-long study. Each participant had to go through all sorts of tests, medical, physical, biological, and then they were asked a series of 10 questions about their childhood. And in that study, they categorized the ACEs as either abuse, neglect, or household dysfunction. Abuse. Questions like, were you ever sworn at or yelled at? Struck? Made to feel unsafe? Were people in your family? Neglect. Questions like, did you live with an addict? Did you not have enough to eat or clean clothes? Dysfunction. Questions like, did you witness violence in your family? Some of the questions are framed entirely with the words, did you ever feel? Those traumas are about the child's perception, not feeling loved or looked out for, not feeling safe, not feeling like there was anyone who could take care of them in an emergency. And how the child perceives that is almost just as important as the experience itself. Felitti and the researchers matched up what people went through in their childhood and how they were doing health-wise as adults. And suddenly, they had a big public health data set that helped them see patterns. And those patterns started to reveal that, yes, there is a documentable correlation between what happens in childhood and adult health decades later. So that second part of the study, the questionnaire, where people are asked to detail if bad things happened in their childhoods, it's taken on a life of its own. 
It's called the Adverse Childhood Experiences Questionnaire. It's just 10 questions. You get a point for every question that you answer yes to. And even though most experts say you should take the survey in context with a group of people or a therapist, the minute I heard of it, I took it right in the studio. And so did pretty much everyone on the team, which, again, is not what you should do because some of it can be triggering. The average ACEs score is two. My personal score is a one. Britt has also taken the test. She has an ACEs score of seven. Things like the divorce of her parents, the yelling from her stepmom, the neglect she felt from her father not taking her side, all of the adverse things in her childhood added up to an ACEs score of seven. So what does that mean? My one, Brit seven? Is that good? Bad? Yeah, it's complicated. Because the researchers have all this data to compare scores with health outcomes, they can start to make correlations between the two. And then subsequently we learn from the study that these adverse experiences are associated with chronic health conditions in both children and adults. They could start to say that statistically, people who score higher on the ACEs questionnaire more frequently experience things like drug use, alcoholism, suicide, going to prison, risky sexual behavior. And the higher your ACEs score, the more the risk. So, for example, my ACEs score of one means I'm twice as likely to suffer from alcoholism than a person with a score of zero. But Brit has a seven, which means she's at least seven times more likely to suffer from alcoholism. Remember, increasing the odds is just that. It's just higher odds, not a determination for your life. And that increase is not linear. The risks for some things escalate much faster than for others. So, for example, I'm twice as likely to attempt suicide than someone with no ACEs, whereas Brit would be 12 times more likely. And the same trends apply to diseases like cancer. Yeah, cancer. Because toxic stress weakens our immune system and can increase our risk for cancer and plenty of other terrible things like hepatitis, liver disease, heart disease, chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, frequent headaches, multiple bone fractures, and 16 different autoimmune diseases, and more, and more. If you're like, oh my God, all these illnesses, there's so many. Mm-hmm, yeah, that's true. An ACEs score correlates with higher risk for most of the illnesses that constitute the leading causes of death in the United States. We've traditionally attributed these conditions to either the genetics you're born with, the behaviors you have, including smoking, physical inactivity, um, eating habits, and your age. Well, of course, those health behaviors of smoking or physical inactivity or poor diet are going to increase your risk. But now what's understood is even separate from those risks, just having that adverse experience as a child also increases your risk. So it probably makes it extra important if you've experienced adverse childhood experiences to not participate in those high-risk behaviors that increase then your risk for those chronic diseases like heart disease or chronic obstructive pulmonary disease. And beyond those behavioral, mental, and physical risks, there's the correlation with life expectancy. Let's say your ACEs are a 1 or a 2. Well, good for us. Our average life expectancy is 80 years. Let's say your ACEs are a 6 or higher, like Brit. Your average life expectancy is 60 years. 
That's 20 years less. This is why experts are calling childhood trauma a public health crisis. So this finding that adverse childhood experiences are associated with these chronic diseases makes it imperative that we address this currently very under-addressed public health threat. So when we take this big-picture data view of the issue, when we put all of our terribles together, we don't just measure what can go wrong with people. We can start to study how people can short-circuit the worst possible outcomes and create a better path. We can start to see how to care for ourselves and for one another, how to show up beyond Instagram memes. We can start to see why the question we developed early on in the episode is not what's wrong with you, but what happened to you and what can we do to help? Even Britt's dad says about his wife that, quote, the more and longer I know her, the more I understand how she was brought up and her struggles. We don't know what happened to Britt's stepmom. We just know what happened to Britt. So what is Britt supposed to do with her score? What does that mean for her? Is she totally doomed? No, probably not. No, none of us are doomed. None of us are doomed. In what we told about Britt's childhood, we basically reduced her down to her sad childhood story. Just her aces. But no one is just a sad story or just aces. It doesn't look at it in a three-dimensional lens. It doesn't look at it in the fact that what is going on around you while you're experiencing the ACE really impacts those health outcomes. Probably with everybody we live with in our lives, we have positive and negative experiences. And just like the negative experiences can increase risk for health concerns, the positive experiences can mitigate those risks or decrease those risks. So it's going to be very important to, if you identify that you have ACEs in your life, to make sure and see it within the full context of what else was going on at that time. Do you have protective factors in place? Do you have supportive adults around you? Do you have self-confidence, self-worth? How does all this research help us be kinder to ourselves and each other, to not live out our worst possibilities? And how do we talk about resilience? We'll get into all of that in our next episode. We'll go back and take another look at Britt's childhood from the perspective of her protective factors. And we'll hear about how Britt and her family are doing now. I'm Nora McNerney, and this has been Terrible. Thanks for asking. Our senior producer is Hans Butow. Marcel Malikibu is our associate producer. Hannah Meacock-Ross is our project manager. Jordan Turgeon is our digital... Digital producer? Digital producer. New title. We are edited by Phyllis Fletcher, and our intern... Good... I'm getting to it! Our intern is a beautiful vegan named Megan Palmer. Okay. Um, who helped us with this episode? Only the greatest, Curtis Gilbert, the wind beneath our wings. 
just really great. Uh, Rachel Dennis, which was so lovely to see you, Rachel. Thank you for coming. Also, your hair has gotten so long. It's been a while. Tracy Mumford, who recently got a haircut and a new hair color. New fall cut and color. Also looks great. Audrey Kennedy, Cleo Crage, Katrina Pross, and Dylan Anderson. They really, they, they, were, a, they were a fresh crew, fresh crop of people giving us their feedback on the episode. It was very insightful. This episode is produced in partnership with Call to Mind, American Public Media's initiative to foster new conversations about mental health. You can find resources to help understand childhood trauma and how to address it in your life or with someone you know at calltomindnow.org. Things like stuff from the National Child Traumatic Stress Network and let us know how much this series helps you understand how what happened to you affects who you are. That and more at calltomindnow.org. We produce this episode with support from the Sauer Family Foundation, which is committed to improving the lives of disadvantaged children and their families in Minnesota. And St. David's Center, which is building relationships that nurture the development of every child and family. Our theme music is by Joffrey Wilson, and I can't believe we're saving him till the end. Joffrey Wilson. Um, really heck of a guy. And we are a production of APM, American Public Media. I was going to think of something funny every week, a funny acronym, but I'm not good at it. Literally, when I was driving home yesterday, Hans, I tried to think of a new one. I came up with nothing. Nothing. Like, I could not think of a single word that started with A, P, or M. None. Apricot Pants Masters. <laughs> wow, she just thought of that on her own. Wow, intern, Apricot Pants Masters. She's thought of that. That's what a 21-year-old brain can do. That's that elasticity, which we'll talk about next week. Okay, bye.